Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 33 of the Learning to Lead podcast. This month I had the opportunity to sit down with David Lassman, who's a Distinguished Service Professor at Carnegie Mellon University's Heinz College of Public Policy and Management, where he teaches courses on organizational behavior and strategy. He also teaches organizational culture and leading change in various executive education programs at Heinz College and at Carnegie Mellon's Tepper School of Business. Prior to joining Carnegie Mellon's faculty full-time this past summer, David had spent over 25 years in private industry leading teams in operations and engineering. And I had the privilege of uh, meeting David. Uh, I had the honor of going through one of Carnegie Mellon's executive education courses uh, called Leadership is a Daily Challenge. It was a fantastic experience. And uh, four of Carnegie Mellon's uh, faculty taught uh, different classes each day. And I really enjoyed all four of them. I hope to interview all four um, faculty. And uh, I was really impressed with David as well. I loved his energy. I loved his um, just everything that he taught out of experience, and uh, I just thought that he could add a lot of value to you. So got the privilege to sit down with him. We spent two hours together, and I took lots of notes, and uh, it was just fantastic. And uh, this interview is awesome. I know it will add value to your life, and um, I hope you enjoy it. And so enjoy this interview, and I'll talk to you next month. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks, David, so much for, for being with us and being willing to do the interview. And why don't we start with you just telling us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and what you're passionate about. What do I do and what I'm passionate about? So uh, I am a, a, what's called a distinguished service professor, which is kind of a long title. Uh, but uh, um, that is what I do here at Carnegie Mellon. I've been here about uh, six months. Prior to that, I was in public industry, or not public, but private industry my whole life, mainly in engineering and operations. A little bit about myself. I'm a burger. I grew up in Point Breeze. Uh, went to the public schools. Uh, in fact, uh, went to Reisenstein the first year it was open in 76. Um, then uh, when I was a little older, we moved out to O'Hara. So I finished high school at Fox Chapel. Uh, then went off to college and business school and work and then moved back to Pittsburgh like all good Pittsburghers. Boom, we back in 2000. Um, so they said, now a professor here at Carnegie Mellon. I have a wife who teaches yoga and two uh, teenage boys, one who's a sophomore at Penn State, the other one who's going to be a freshman there next year, both studying engineering. That's great. So walk us to how you got to where you are today. I mean, were you always a bright young star? <laughs> how bright am I? Um, my bright no, um, bright young star. I don't even know what that means. I so, so actually, you know, I always did pretty well in school. I kind of liked school. Um, I was, um, I was the kind of kid who, uh, actually, you know, I always got picked last. Although on sports teams, frankly, if I could have not, if the option was to not pick me at all, I probably would have never gotten picked. Right, like dodgeball and you know, and basketball and stuff. It's like last, he's last. I had glasses when I was six. I was kind of studious, <laughs> so I was always kind of the last guy picked and kind of laid kind of low. Um, but I was always good at school. I liked school. I was good at math and science. Uh, and I think that has uh, probably done me pretty well, and that's probably what led to me getting into good colleges and, and uh, you know, doing well from that, you know, academically. Yeah. So I met you in a, in a leadership course called uh, Leadership is a Daily Challenge. Loved your, your portion of that. So talk to us a little bit about how you learned leadership. I mean, you entered, you went to Princeton, et cetera. How did you learn leadership? You just get thrown Yeah, so, so, you know, leadership, you, 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 I probably learned it. The biggest way you learn it is by watching people and also by making mistakes um, and by having mentors. So I was really lucky, uh, you know, after Princeton, and I went up to Detroit and worked for General Motors and, and uh, had a mentor there, a guy named Bud Darnell, uh, who ran the engine plant where we made 
a lot of two two and a half cylinder engines back then. And he was a. It was interesting. Bud was a very smart guy, but what he really was good at is just people. He was just good at kind of inspiring people and getting them to do stuff and, and wanting you know wanting to help them do better. He was a really he was a really good leader, and he kind of took me under his wing. Uh, and then there have been other people like that throughout my life uh, that have I've, I have found when I've had people like that in my life, I always did better. Uh, when I didn't have mentors left to my own devices, I would make silly mistakes, uh, some of which were fairly painful. So the other way you learn leadership, you know, one is you kind of watch, you get mentors. The other is just on your own, you experiment and do things. Some work, some don't. Um, the third is, uh, you know, just education. Like you went to that class. I got an MBA for a couple of years in Boston um, and learned about leadership, you know, from a theoretical standpoint. You read, you do cases, those kinds of things. So those are, I think, kind of three ways. Mentors, your own experiences, and the third is, uh, you know, regular kind of learning through books, cases, teaching. Yeah. So I'm curious if you've studied leadership, you've seen good leadership. What do you they're the characteristics of a great leader. I'm That's sure there's funny. a ton of them. But. Well, so we were just talking about that today. I was meeting with uh, Denise Rousseau and David Crackhart, and we were talking about this today. And uh, We're actually going to be trying to quantify that here at Heinz because there's been uh, uh, some of our uh, uh, the students who come here from organizations are really interested in us uh, teaching a little bit more about leadership. For me, the, I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, like Paul O'Neill. Uh, the guy who used to be the treasurer, uh, uh, secretary of the treasury, and ran Alcoa. He is just a superstar. Um, uh, so people like him, I, I kind of watch their leadership style. I'm a big fan of Level Five leadership uh, by uh, Collins. For me, some of the biggest leadership traits, the, the things I see in the best leaders, there's a few traits. The very best leaders are really good listeners. Not only are they really good listeners, they're really good question askers. In other words. They always don't know what to do, but they ask really good questions. They don't tell people what to do. They ask questions and help them figure it out. Okay? Um, the other thing they do is um, when things go really well, they give other people a lot of credit. Uh, when things go bad, they take the blame, which basically means they, they're not arrogant. They don't have, they're not arrogant. I don't like to use the term ego because they have self-confidence, so clearly they have healthy egos, but they're not arrogant. Okay. The other thing really good leaders do is they care about other people. They have empathy, so they're compassionate. And I don't mean to the point where they let people get away with stuff. They can still make tough decisions, and if someone's not doing well, they have a hard discussion, and if they can't coach someone to be better, they move them out of the organization. By the same token, when someone's having issues, they do coach them. They try to make them better. They're, they're, their first assumption is that people are basically good and smart and want to do well, and they try to make them better. If they can't, they deal with it. But the very best leaders have a, you know, so again, they listen, they ask questions, they're not arrogant, they have a lot of empathy and help people get through stuff. That's great. I'm going to ask two questions. You're in education. So based on your personal experience, one, do you think our current education systems do a good job of preparing students for leadership? Specifically also tie in, I know you went to Princeton and Harvard, so I'm real interested on how those what those experiences taught you about leadership and if they even prepared you for leadership? So undergraduate, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say that undergraduate at Princeton really prepared me for leadership, right? I was just getting an engineering degree. I wasn't uh, on any sports teams, um, mainly because I'm not a very good athlete. I'm not, my hand-eye coordination is bad, as it turns out. <laughs> like, I play ice hockey. I love, I play twice a week. I love playing ice hockey. I just started a few years ago. I played like a couple dozen times in my late teens, early 20s. Yeah. 
you know. And then I started, and I didn't play. And then I started playing again, and I love it. But I'm, I'm, I'm what I have what they call stone hands, like you know, the the, the puck hits my stick, and they're like stone. I just don't know what to do with it. Um, uh, uh, so where were we with that? You're talking about uh, undergrad for pet. Oh yeah, right, right, right. So you know, a lot of people do sports, or they're involved in clubs, and they learn how to be you know leaders. I never really did that in undergrad. At Harvard, I mean, there were classes, there were organizational behavior classes where they focused on, you know, teaching us what leadership was and uh, how you interact with people and those kinds of things. So there was some kind of formal training there. There wasn't any, and we did all case studies. And case studies are good for that because they put you in real-life situations and you try to resolve, resolve it uh, and figure out what the best thing to do. I think Harvard has gone one has, has really upped their game in that, and now they do a lot of experiential stuff where they put you in teams and you solve problems, and they have field work where you go out and you help companies with small teams for a few weeks. They're doing a lot of different things to kind of help build on teamwork and leadership. That I didn't have quite as much because the curriculum at Harvard was different, uh, dare I say, 25 years ago, uh, right. which may have been before you were born. I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> So right now, I mean, current education system, you say undergrad, not so much, grad, yes. Yeah, I'm not saying that, and I'm not saying it's good or bad. Right. I just think, I think, you know, the other thing is if you want to learn about leadership, so again, you know, as I said before, you get a mentor, you do it yourself, uh, you get some education. I think as you get older, you you know, you, that's where you get more mentors and you kind of do some things on your own. And then when you get, if you go to classes like you went to, that helps you kind of put things together. Like if you've got some leadership, if you've done some things where you've supervised some people and learned about leadership, and then you go take a class about it, it helps you kind of connect the dots. You're like, oh yeah, I've done that, and I've, you know, kind of helped. Yeah. So, because again, I see a lot of young leaders they get their undergrad and immediately go and get their grad degree, and they don't have any experience, and I see a disconnect. Yeah. Do you agree? That's a very good point. I uh, well, you know, a lot of business schools won't allow you. They won't accept you without at least two years of experience. And I think that is absolutely true. You should have two, at least two, if not four to six years of work experience before you go get an MBA or a, a, a master's in public policy. You know, you should, you should maybe, you know, wait a few years, get some good work experience under your belt. That's good. Talk about one or two people, maybe mentors that were in your life that, that really helped you become who you are today. So I told you about that guy, Bud. Um, yeah. Pretty much everywhere I've worked, I've had people. There was a woman, uh, I worked at Teradyne for a year right after B-School, a woman named Randy Stone, and she was phenomenal. Really wicked smart, technically just wicked, wicked smart about the business. Really, no, she was, uh, she did a really nice job of being very firm. Like, if you did something wrong, she was like, you know, you did this wrong, and let's fix it. But also just a really good coach. Um, she was a real. She was a good leader. I mean, she made people feel good, but she also. Well, I can't speak for everybody. I know she made me feel good about my job, good about the work I did. But also, when I screwed up, she was like, "Hey, you screwed up," you know. She would. She'd be okay if you screwed up. She just didn't want you making the same mistake twice. Hmm. Then there was this guy in Buffalo, probably had one of the biggest impacts on me. Period. A guy named John Zahorian, who's since passed away. That's the bad thing about it. When you get older, your, your mentors pass away. Um, he was, uh, he used to be the VP at, at Oster, you know, that makes the blenders and stuff. And then he was VP at, uh, Fisher Price Toys and he was in charge of operations. And, uh, a buddy of mine from business school and I, he was the general manager and I was the operations manager. We're fixing an aerospace and automotive supplier, manufacturing company out in Buffalo. And we hired him as a consultant and he taught me so much. So he'd come in like once every, 
I can't remember how often it was. It was every couple of weeks for like six months. And he'd meet with me and we'd talk about, you know, technical operations issues like inventory and uh, some production issues. And then we'd talk a lot about people. And, you know, I'd talk about issues I was having and he was a tremendous help. I mean, unbelievable. The guy had a huge impact on me. That's awesome. You may have already answered this, but what are you doing to, can, to ensure you continue to grow and develop as a leader? I know now you have to stay on top yes, of this. Yes, you say, I'm lucky, right. right? This is my right. job, right? I have to do this. So when you were in the work field, what did you do? So in the, so in the work field, I did a few things. One is, um, uh, but I'm trying to think. So I've been a professor now. I was an adjunct for like eight and a half years. So before I was teaching at all, um, I don't think I did as good a job as staying up on things. I had, by the way, one thing I did do is I wrote my own diary. And that's actually a really good idea. I, I tell all my students that you don't have to write every day. Maybe once a week. Maybe sometimes it's once a month. But you should have a diary where you write stuff. Yeah. Right? Write the, what did you learn? What happens? Good stuff and bad stuff. Write it down. Because it's amazing when you go back and read it. First off, there's this thing, you know, there's been studies that done when you write something down. And you don't have to write it on pen and paper. It can be on a computer. You type it in. But when you do that, you remember it better. It sinks in. Um, the other thing is, you know, a year or two later, you go back and read it, and you start to see an arc. You start to see trends and things you've learned, and you realize you're actually getting better, which kind of makes you feel good, <laughs> right? That's not a bad thing. So that's one thing. Um, the other is uh, meet with friends and colleagues. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people that are in similar situations, similar spots in their career that you, you know, look at friends and colleagues that you trust and respect. Obviously, if there's someone you don't trust or respect, that's not someone you want to emulate. The third thing is uh, having mentors. That, that's really, you know, people that can tell you stuff and have experienced things. That's a great way to learn. The other is to read. Whether it's, uh, I think uh, HBR is a really good thing to read, Harvard Business Review. Um, uh, there's a bunch of books and authors that I love that I always read. That's my next question. Give us a handful of books uh, to say to your students so, you have to read. Yeah, so this I actually wrote down. So this I'm going to take right off. So there's, so there's a few books that have really had a big impact on my life. One is uh, a book called Brothers and Keepers by John Edgar Wideman. And uh, it, it, it talks... Uh, <laughs> A, 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 a guy I knew up in Buffalo, a guy named Bob Brady, who was a chairman of Moog, which is like a billion-dollar aerospace supplier. Bob's a really bright guy uh, and a, a really nice guy, too. One of the things he used to say, one of his – he had he had ten, ten things they don't teach you at Harvard Business School. So Bob went to Harvard Business School and graduated from there. And one of his number one thing was much of life is happenstance. And uh, this book is kind of like – the book talks about two brothers. One ends up going to jail for murder. The other ends up – going to Penn and then being a Rhodes Scholar. And the book is just about, you know, how do these two kids from the same family just end up in these different places? And it just tells a phenomenal, and it's a hard story. It's painful. You know, it's not an easy story to tell. But he talks about his brother. He talks about him. And they grew up in Homewood, which was about a, uh, I don't know, he probably grew up about a half mile from where I grew up because I grew up near Westinghouse Park in Point Breeze. So that's one. The other one is uh, I'm a huge fan of all David McCullough books. And the reason I like those, I, I don't read, I don't, I don't read nonfiction. Excuse me, I don't read fiction. I read all, I love history and biographies. I like figuring out how people did stuff. And a lot of it is uh, back to Bob Brady saying, a lot of it is happenstance. You know, how did people, like they built the Panama Canal. The biggest issue with building the Panama Canal was figuring out why people were getting sick from malaria. And it took them a while to figure out it was mosquitoes and why. 
the mosquitoes were making people sick. So there's all these, I love David McCullough books because he tells great stories about history and how people did really amazing things like building a Panama Canal, the Brooklyn Bridge. He tells about the Johnstown flood and what happened. Another one is Malcolm Gladwell. He's just a great, I just love the way he writes and, 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 and uh, debunks some of the things that we think are true. His yeah. book, Outliers, uh, tells a lot of great stories about, um, uh, you know, like the Canadian hockey system, for example, the junior hockey system, and how we think it's a meritocracy, but it really isn't. It's really about getting your 10,000 hours in, which is just, you know, kind of, just it's, it's a great story. Um, another one is The Geography of Nowhere by James Kunstler. And he can be a little bit over the top, but that, that one book in particular just talks about uh, how we have uh, kind of the impact of suburbs and how we've created a car culture to the detriment of how we feel about where we live. Um, let's see. And then the other one is, uh, let's see what else. I talked about HBR. Then the other one is, I like reading books about Wall Street because I think we need to be paying attention because Wall Street right now is pretty unregulated and a lot of bad things happen. So I'm a big fan of Michael Lewis. I just love all his books. He tells great stories about people and uh, Wall Street and kind of how they run, and I think they're—I think he's kind of dead nuts on. It's just good to read him. That's great. I gave that was a long list. I may have been too long. No, I, I love that. Okay. Sure um, let's see. Let's talk about failure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do we have enough time? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just maybe talk about one failure in your life, and what, what have you learned? Only one. Yeah. Or what have you learned about failure? Maybe use an example. How about that? Um, failure Um, if you're not failing I mean this is trite if you're not failing you're not trying hard enough the key is to have you know when you're younger you're not going to be running things you're going to have a boss and the key is to have a boss who allows you to fail people are not defined by the failures they're defined by the recoveries and that's a really important thing to remember so like if you screw up what you should be focusing on is not, oh, my God, I screwed up. Look how bad this is. you got to get over that real quickly and say, how do I fix it as fast as possible? Because what people will remember, they'll, if you actually recover well and fix it, they will actually laugh at the failure and say, wow, you were such an idiot. I can't believe you did that. But wow. And the reason they'll, they'll say it that way is because you recovered well. Like if you don't recover well, they'll feel bad for you and they won't joke about it. You know, it'll be like, well, that was a pretty bad thing that happened. But if you recover well and you fix it, they'll kind of joke about the failure. Because they're pretty clear that, you know, you recovered well. And that's what people remember is that you recovered well. That's what matters. You will fail. I failed plenty. There's plenty of things I did that were silly. And uh, that's one of the reasons I like teaching is because I hope that people won't make the same mistakes that I made because I made plenty of them. We don't have enough time to talk about them all. That's fine. I did put a, a, a question in there about productivity. You know, how, essentially how do you, how do you structure your days and time to be as productive as possible and focus on what's essential? That's a great question. I am not. I think by uh, by nature I am fairly productive. Luckily, I really uh, seriously. I mean, some people. I mean, I just kind of. I'm an engineer, so I tend to be pretty methodical. I have you know a list of things. Some people are probably much better, frankly, better at it than I am. Um, I know there are people that say you should do two things first thing in the day that you really don't want to do just to get them done. To, and, and I think that's really good philosophy that I do not do, and I don't know why because I should. Um, I. I uh, I have a list, and I try. I have a list that's that's running, and it. I may have that for a couple of weeks, and I just kind of knock things off it. Um, I tend to be pretty action oriented, so I tend to get things done. I also tend to sometimes procrastinate. Like, 
if there's something I should be working on, uh, instead of doing it six weeks from when it's due, I may do it the week from when it's due. That's not necessarily the best way to do it, but that's just kind of so, what happens. It's just the way it works. I, I tend to be, I tend to be triage. I kind of tend to do stuff when I need to get it done. Although I'm pretty good at knowing when I'm about to be out of time. <laughs> so luckily, I'm not the kind of guy that waits too long and then has to pull two all-nighters. I tend to know, have a good feel for, you know, uh, hey, it's seven days before it's due. I better get on it and not wait until two days when I just it's going to kill me to get it done. That's great. So this, my, I guess my point there is long-winded. It's probably better people to ask that question than me. Yeah, works for you. Yeah, that, no, it is. But you know yourself. You know your strengths. Yeah, I know what I'm good at, and I'm actually working on that a little bit. A, a, uh, another friend of mine gave me this great advice, and I'm older, right? So I'm, you know, it's not like I'm 22 anymore. And this was just, this guy, since he was in college, he actually every year he writes down, kind of around Christmas time, a list of things he wants to do the next year. And so, uh, you know, I'm older, and I'm just, I just did that for the first time this year. And, and actually it's a really good idea because one is when you write it down and you look at it every week, you actually will get more done. And, and, and there need to be some things on there. You know, I have some bigger things and some not-so-big things. I have things uh, on there like do more yoga, okay? So I am – I have not – it's already February. I'm not doing as much of that as I want to. I should admit that publicly, uh, especially I if my – I tell your wife, yeah. Please don't. Don't give her the address to this web <laughs> web address to the blog or the, to this uh, talk. Um, but I, actually, it's a really good idea for young people. It's kind of like the diary. Getting into a habit of writing things, getting into a habit of having a list, and then checking it every now and then to kind of see how you're doing – you know, there, there's something kind of magic about if you write something down, you have a higher probability of doing it if you've actually written it down and you look at it every week or every month. If you don't, you probably won't. And I don't mean you need to set goals like next year I need to save $27,386. But you may want to have a goal that says, you know, we want to put away, you know, 5% of our savings this year. You know, something that's, you know, it doesn't have to be to the dollar. Uh, and you don't want it to be too aggressive, but you want to just start, you know, to make you think about it, to make sure you're clear on what it is. You may want to have a goal that says, hey, I want to do yoga once a week. Well, put it on a piece of paper. You may, you're not going to achieve them all, but you may achieve half of them. And, and this guy, he did a really neat thing. He would write down some, you know, some, some things were financial. He'd have one or two financial goals. He'd have a bunch of kind of spiritual um, goals and, you know, goals that would make him a better person. A lot of it was really, it wasn't really about career and money so much. It was a lot more about relationship with his wife, with his kids, with just, you know, kind of what he wants to do in the community. It's a really good idea. That's good. Let's transition and talk about young leaders. You spend a lot of time with them, so this should roll off your tongue. What are, um, just a few questions about young leaders. What qualities do you look for in up-and-coming leaders? Or, I guess, another way of saying what characteristics should young people develop? So what? Care, so actually, I guess it comes back to what I said before. You know, listening, learning. And by the way, if you're not a good listener, so what is it? We said uh, it was listening, asking questions, being empathetic, not being arrogant. You may not have those gifts naturally, but if you practice them, you know, it's a funny thing about things. If you practice something over and over again, and start to make it a habit, habit, you actually will start to become that. Right? I mean, there's something to be said for it. It's like, just like Malcolm Gladwell said uh, in his book Outliers, if you practice something enough, you will get good at it, even if you are perhaps not naturally gifted. He tells the story about the Beatles. His thing is 10,000 hours. You've got to get 10,000 hours and have been really good something, really good. And he talks about the Beatles, and he said the Beatles 
played, they, they went to Germany for a while and played these dives. But they, they played for hours every day. And the Beatles got really, really good. Now, you could argue that they had some incredible innate talent. And or you could argue that because they practiced so much for so many years that they just got phenomenal. I think it's some combination of both. So even if you think you are not a good listener or you're not good at asking questions, or if you think you are kind of arrogant, although most people that are arrogant don't admit it, um, you can practice behaviors that will make you better, and you should. The, the biggest thing I look for in, in, in whether I'm hiring, some, hiring someone or anal, you know, looking at a leader and trying to figure out what they have, I look for people that are lifelong learners. That's the biggest. You know, you can have someone who has a lot of technical skills, and that's important, but I want to know someone that is a lifelong learner. They are self-critical. They want to have a mentor and help them learn. They want to take classes. Uh, you know, they, they, when, when they have a boss who, who gives them advice, they take it and try to change. That's what I look for. I look for, I look for people that are reading, read a lot. I look for people that have hobbies that are kind of neat and they're passionate about you got to be passionate about something. Yeah. No, I think that's good. Uh, I think you answered that. Um, Although there's one, one, one other thing, yeah, too. Yeah. One other thing is, uh, you know, do what you love. Try to find, you know, life's a lot easier and things tend to go, you, you, getting back to much of life as happenstance, if you work really hard at something you love, your life tends to go better. You know, whether it's because, you you know, I don't know if it's fate or you, you know, believe in God, whatever. But, it's just kind of the, the happiest people are people that do what they love. They may not make the most money, and I would argue money isn't. I don't think I don't. I don't think money is the true measure of us as a person. My goal is not to be rich. My goal is to be happy. I'd like to be healthy and happy. And money, you know, so money. I need enough money to be healthy, which means I need enough money to have food on my table that is healthy and right, and I don't starve. Right. Um, but how much money do I need? I just need enough money. I need enough money to be able to. Do the modest things I want to do and be a, lead a healthy lifestyle. Um, so if the goal is to be happy, do what you love. Things tend to work out a lot better. People I know that are really happy, and you know, do what they love. Yeah. Now, how do you get that embedded in the minds of, of young people who are on the front end of their careers? <laughs> a lot of people learn that when they're older, right? When yeah. They're just like, okay, looking back, I'm things different. By the way, it's a, really, it's a really good point because young people, uh, how do you figure out what you love? You've got to experience some stuff. You've got to go out there and try some things. Well, guess what? Go try some things. And, and if you want to know what you love, you know, it's important when you're younger so you have a job, right? Um, yeah, you've you got to spend time there and work on it. Maybe you try different jobs. Have hobbies. Uh, get involved in your community. Kind of see what makes you tick. Learn what you love. Ask the people that know you best. What kind of things do you like to do? What are your interests? Ask yourself, you know, what are you reading? What are the things that tend to get you uh, passionate, both from the standpoint, wow, I love that, or wow, that just gets my blood boiling. It really pisses me off. Th those are things that will start to, t you know, what you'll start to figure out what matters to you. And it may, some people are lucky. They figure that out when they're 16. Some people, 20. Some people, I didn't figure out that I wanted to teach until I was in my 40s, my mid to late 40s. Which one could, back, could have you figured that out when you were younger? Or do you think it just naturally? Uh, uh, yeah, my, the arc of my life is pretty weird. Um, <laughs> you know, I went to, you know, I, I, it's, it's funny. Some of the, 
So I had, I had a really amazing job in 19, so when I was in my mid-20s. Then I kind of went sideways for about 20, 10 years and did a mishmash of things. Because actually I, I, I did some things that really, you know, you talk about failure, some things that really didn't work out well. I was up in Buffalo where I met my wife uh, and, and took some jobs. One, because I, I took jobs where I would have an ownership interest because I think, you know, I went to Harvard and we should own stuff, right? I should be the president or CEO and I should own a company. Right. That didn't work out well for me at all. <laughs> um, so finally, after about 10 years, when I was, 19, when I was, when I was 38, I remember I was, I was with my wife and I looked at her and said, you know, uh, I have one goal in life, and that's to not grow up an angry old man. Uh, and that actually was not my saying. That was a, a buddy of mine, Mike Militello, who was a friend from business school. That was his saying. But I said it to my wife. I said, I don't want to be an angry old man. I said, I'm 38, and uh, if we don't get the hell out of Buffalo, I'm going to be an angry old man in about two weeks. And I mean, I'm just going to be mean the rest of my life. I can feel it. Um, so, you know, so we left Buffalo, uh, and then kind of my career got kind of, you know, it got back on track. And I went back to what I did, kind of back to, you know, I said I had a couple of really good jobs early on in Buffalo in kind of engineering and operations. I went back to that. And then I started teaching, and then I realized how much I loved that. And I did some consulting on the side. And then I had, and then I went, uh, you know, and then I had a job in industry at a big company for about five and a half years. And then when the opportunity, I left there, when the opportunity came to teach, I was like, that's what I want to do. So it took me a while to figure it out, right? I'm not sure I could have been a professor. I would never have considered being a professor right out of the gate. Say, I don't have a PhD. I would have never considered getting a PhD. I think where I ended up has, is, is, has worked out really well, and, but it was not necessarily planned that way. Some people can plan it better than others. I also caution people, you know, don't plan your life too much because stuff happens, right? I mean, you, you want to be open to opportunities. You may be in a job and doing one thing and think you love it and another opportunity may come by and you should be open to that. Uh, you may get sick. You may not be married and then get married and uh, your spouse wants to move to Toledo and you may end up doing that. You gotta have some room to, to bob and weave and take advantage of the happenstance that comes along in your life. That's good. So the Arkham, if you'd asked me 25 years ago, would I be sitting in this, or even 10 years ago, would I be sitting as a professor at, you know, at, at Carnegie Mellon? I would have said no. Hmm. I would have said, what are you talking about? So just, some things just kind of happen. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. My pastor always says, don't put a period where God puts a comma. <laughs> right. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, a great, that's a great way to put it. Because Actually, life is a comma, not a period. Because hmm. it's a journey. It never, it, it, by the way, it ends when you die. And that's about it. That's a period. Yeah. yeah, that's a period. As it turns out, that's kind of the period. But the rest of it is. It's a comma. And by the way, and that's a really good saying for another reason. You know, one of the things I think that we are not, the other thing I, I, I tell people, students, is uh, make sure you t take time to think and reflect. You know, commas or pauses. I mean, your pastor says a really good thing there. It's really insightful because it's one of the reasons why I tell students, you know, have a diary, have a mentor. Take, take time to think and reflect. You know, in this world where everything is so in your face, Constantly, you know, emails. Now they're on. They're on our phones now, right? I mean, texting, everything. Make sure you take time to think and reflect. Otherwise, you know, it's like it's like driving without a map, right? It's why you know, write, if you can write yearly goals, it's not a bad idea. If you can have a, a diary, that, that's a good thing to do. And every now and then, take take an hour or two every. If you can do it every week, it's great. But that's hard to do. But if you can do it every month, and just reread your diary, look at your goals, just think about. How did the last month go? What did I like that I did? What did I not like? 
Do I see, you know, what am I passionate about? Think and reflect about your life is an important thing. You'll read about that in, in Christensen's book. Okay. Uh, he talks about that. He's a great, he, he, he frames it really, really, really well. For the sake of the interview, what's that book? Is? How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen. It's fabulous. Really good book. He's a, he's a, he's a, he, he really puts it down well. Hmm. I'm anxious to read that. Uh, what do you see young leaders missing most often? Or missing it most often? Where you're like, you just want to grab them and be like, listen. I, I think probably the biggest things is uh, probably that last thing. You know, take time, think, and reflect. Try to figure out what you really like and what makes you tick. Because if you don't take the time to do that, you'll just be kind of like bouncing around from one thing to another. That's what I did in Buffalo. I was kind of bouncing around from one thing to another, and I did what I thought I should be doing as a Harvard Business School grad as opposed to what I really wanted to do, right? Um, I think the other thing as a young leader is, you know, just work hard. You know, there's no, there is no substitute for hard work. You know, you're going to have to work hard at something. And as long as you love it, it's not hard. It's, the work's, it's not bad. It's not, it's not work, <laughs> right? I mean, you ask an NHL hockey player, and they'll be like, I can't believe I get paid this much to do something that I, you know, it's, for me, it's a, it's a game, yeah. right? It's not, it's not work. It's a game. Um, the other thing is uh, have really good mentors. you got to look at people you respect, you look up to, and say, you know, I'd like to live their life. You know, you, I keep coming back to the same things. I guess I say the no, same things over and over. I, mean, I think, and you may have already mentioned this, it may just be developing those characteristics that you mentioned. Yeah. But how do you attract good mentors? I, I think, for me, it's like I had a mentor tell me, go out and reach out to these people. But I think a lot of people, a lot of young leaders ask me all the time, how do you get to spend time with people? Or how do you get mentored by this person? Do well, you have so, any advice? Yeah, so mentors, uh, you got to be careful. Um, so you find someone that you, res- you respect and you look up to and say, wow. You know, I'm their age. I'd like to be like them. I like their values. You've got to find someone whose values are similar, right? And look at someone that, as I said, you look at and say, wow, I'd like to be like them in 15, 20 years. A lot of times with mentor relationships, it rarely works where you, like, go to someone and say, will you be my mentor? <laughs> right? That's kind of hokey. Right. What happens is you just kind of – all my mentor relationships have been – they just kind of helped me. They noticed that I was really appreciative of it. And next thing you know, we're having lunch every, you know, month. Right? I never said, will you be my mentor? And they never said, Dave, can I be your mentor? Right, right. It just kind of became a relationship where you become kind of friends, but uh, they also kind of are telling you things, and they know that, and you both appreciate it for that. Yeah. And that's all it is. Yeah, it doesn't have to be Facebook official. Like, yeah, yeah, but ex- yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that, that's, that, that's not what it is. Now, as, okay. you, as, and as you're younger, you, you need to seek that out. Most people, let me put it this way, most people that want to be mentors and want to help other people, are really flattered when a young person says, hey, can we go out for lunch or coffee? Like when somebody asks me that, I kind of, you know, I like that. It makes me feel good that someone actually thinks that I could actually help them. <laughs> it's not a yeah. bad feeling. Yeah, I think young leaders need to hear that because I think so many times we look at successful people and we get so intimidated thinking that they're not human, right? It's like Well, here's another way to look at it. If you ask someone and they say no, that's not someone that you want, right? Because yeah. most people, the very best leaders are happy to do that because they know how important it is. Whether that's someone, you know, it's a leader in the play, at the organization you work, or a leader from, you know, your religion, wherever you, you know, your church, or your synagogue, or, uh, uh, you know, whatever, your temple, whether it's uh, just a family friend, the people that are really good leaders can actually teach you stuff are really happy to do it. That's good. And the ones that say no, you didn't want them to be your mentor anyway. You just learned something. I love that. I wrote that down. All right, let's get the uh, last few personal questions, and then we'll close out here. But uh, out of everything that you've accomplished up to this point in your life, what are you most proud of? What am I most proud of? Um, 
probably uh, ending up kind of where I've ended up, being able to uh, uh, you know, be here at Carnegie Mellon uh, and help people. You know, I, you know for me, uh, uh, if I look back at a period of time, whether it's a week or a month, it's a time where I, you know, I've been in class, I get really good feedback from students, I talk to professors about things, I've had students come and ask me you know, questions, and I've helped them kind of sort through things. Again, I'm not giving answers. I'm just asking questions and helping them figure it out. Uh, you know, I'm really proud of that. That's worked out well. And, you know, if you ask me where would I like to be in 25 years, I, I'm kind of pretty happy with this, right? I mean, this this this, this works pretty well. The other things I'm proud of is uh, having a couple of, you know, teenage, you know, boys now going off to college. And my wife and I have been married 21 years, and we like to travel a lot. And that's a good thing. Um I'm proud of the fact that uh, my, you know, I stay in shape. Uh, I, I picked up ice hockey uh, a few years ago, and I play twice a week. I'd like to play more, but awesome. um, you're gonna get your 10,000 hours. I get, uh, I don't know how the hell that's gonna happen. 10,000 <laughs> hours. So I mean, I play, I play four hours a week. So it's just like, it's a, and there is, I think there is an age in about 20 years. You know, once you hit 70, I'm not sure. I don't see a lot of 70-year-old hockey players. Right. I mean, I play with some guys that are a little bit older than me. It's interesting. I actually, I haven't seen anybody over. Kind of a whole bunch of guys drop out in their mid fifties, so I'm hoping that I will buck that trend and play until I'm about seventy. But we'll see how that goes. Yoga. <laughs> I think that, actually that's one of the keys to yeah. it. Um, the best athletes, you got to stay limber, and and yoga helps. Eating healthy helps. So I get, you know I, I am proud of uh, where my careers ended up. I'm proud of my family. I'm proud of the, the fact that uh, uh, you know we live in we live in the city. Um, I'm playing some hockey. I, I used to say we live in the city. I live right near Carnegie Mellon. I ride my bike a lot to work. I walk a lot to work. Um, it's you know it's 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 good. It works out pretty well. Great. So in 30, 40 years, when you're no longer playing hockey, you're looking back <laughs> on your life. What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want to be remembered for? Uh, uh, pro- uh, yeah, you know it's funny. Money has nothing to do with it. Hmm. Yeah, money has absolutely zero to do with it, uh, other than just uh, allowing me to live uh, a healthy life, right, and be happy. Uh, when I say happy, have enough money to. You want to have enough money so you don't have to worry about it. But that's not like millions of dollars. And we have this, that's one of the things that's kind of a little bit messed up here in the United States. There's a whole bunch of people that I think measure their lives by how much money they have. And that's a shame because that's, that's, that's not it. For me, I'd like, to, I'd like to think that there's a whole bunch of people that appreciate that I help them figure things out in their lives. You know, here, and, and I'm lucky. I'm at a place like Carnegie Mellon. It's a great university. We get great students. And uh, I'm able to be in a class, and we talk through stuff as groups, and then some of them come by my office and we talk. There's a whole bunch. Every semester there's a few students that, you know, I stay in touch with throughout the years, and we have coffee every now and then and talk about stuff. Uh, and that's really fun. To me, that would be, that, that, you know, from a career-wise standpoint, that would be the biggest. And the other, I would love to have, you know, I would love to have uh, my two sons and my wife and I, and that when they have families, hopefully, you know, take vacation together and enjoy that. Some families go on vacation, and it's not so much fun. Uh, I'd like to think that we still could and have a blast, and that would be a good sign that we have raised good kids, not axe murderers. Because really, you really don't want to raise axe murderers, as it turns out. Yeah. 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 That's great. And uh, in, in closing, any last advice to young leaders? Or I know you've given plenty already. I think I have, haven't I? That's probably enough. Okay, okay that's great. Well, hey, I appreciate your time, and uh, hopefully we'll get together again sometime. You got it, Doug. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Yep.